Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk about industry departures, Rock's Box, and the Watches and Wonders Virtual Fair. everyone. Welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from my home office in Los Angeles. And I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCK Online, calling in from my home office slash bedroom in New York City. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's it's sort of a, a busy week. A lot of people here, including my sister, she's about to get her second Pfizer shot. Ah. That's very exciting. Most people I know here have been vaccinated. I'm due to get my second Moderna shot on, wait for it, 420. I can think of a way to uh, celebrate that afterwards. You think? Yeah, I might. I might. And then Earth Day is just two days later. It's all feels like a a good vibe week. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty stoked about that. What about you? I, uh, I got my first Moderna shot about a week and a half ago. So, um, it's, it's getting done. I'm super stoked. And can I tell you what else I'm super stoked about last night? I booked my JCK Las Vegas hotel room. So August 24th through August 30th, I will be at the Palazzo. And as I've mentioned many, many times before, you will definitely find me dancing on tables. So all those who are ready and willing to come to Vegas, I I cannot wait to see you there. It was really pretty exciting this moment to print out my reservation, put it in my calendar. So that was another another milestone. I haven't done anything like that for a long time. Yeah. We're in this weird period where you're not 100% sure what to do and you've kind of internalized all these patterns of staying like very cautious. Even thinking about it kind of gets me a little anxious just because we're still not sure where it's going, but it looks like if things keep going on, it's it'll be Vegas and it'll be exciting. It'll be, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think there's reason to be optimistic. And honestly, returning to a trade show and having the industry come together and you know, congratulate ourselves for for getting through all this and doing so in many cases with a plum. I'm super looking forward to that. I don't think I'll be, ever be excited to see an airport as much as I will. I mean, I hate airports, but uh, I'll be excited to see this one. Yeah, so much excitement. Well, so it's it's early April now, and we've got a few sad notes to start today's episode. Um, we want to remember a couple of designers, really successful, talented, wonderful women that we lost over the last few weeks. I'll first start by saying most people know by now, those certainly who have interest in, in designer jewelry, who are fans of Tiffany and company, know that Elsa Peretti, the great Elsa Peretti, died March 18th at the age of 80. Our senior editor, Emily Vesselin, published a wonderful remembrance of her on March 25th, where talked about her design legacy. And of course, anybody who's familiar with her incredible organic essential forms, and Emily described it as liquid sculpture, that aesthetic she had in her most iconic pieces, like the bone cuff or the bean. And one of her mottos was, style is to be simple. Emily talked about it in this article, how almost cliched it is to call it timeless, but how else do you look at pieces by Elsa Peretti? In no decade do they ever look dated. They always look modern. And what a what a feat and achievement that was over the course of her career and for Tiffany and company that still continues to make so much money from her work. It's it's really quite a legacy. Any thoughts on her and what you know what struck me is when doing research was how huge 
she was and how well known like she her stuff was on the cover of Newsweek at one point you know and that's when Newsweek was a huge deal you know she was very in with the whole Studio 54 set and her items were 10% of Tiffany's sales which is incredible you know if you think just one person's vision accounts for 10% of this huge luxury brand's sales yeah i mean it's a wonderful woman a wonderful body of work continues to live on. Lots of people still wear her pieces and obviously get enjoyment from them. I mean, I don't know what more you could ask of a life. Yeah. And, and she had a very interesting life in that she was born extremely wealthy and then she had this falling out with her father. But uh, towards the end of her life, I guess there was some kind of reconciliation and she has, a, and it's named partially after her father, a very large philanthropic organization that gives a lot of money to a lot of good causes. You know, besides jewelry, that's a fantastic legacy. Yeah, yeah, it is. So hats off to Elsa Peretti and, you know, thank you for the contributions to our industry, to our culture and to the history of design. The other passing we we want to share, and I'm going to try to, I'm going to have to probably fight back tears, but on March 30th, we lost Alex Wu, a really talented, very young and very successful designer. Many of you will have known her for her charms and her letters. I mean, we see letter pendants all over the place these days. So it's hard to remember that when she started her business in the early aughts and began making these little letter charms that people would wear around her necks, including Carrie on Sex and the City, you know, very famously, that that was still, you know, something you didn't see a lot of. So I feel like she was a real trailblazer in these very beautifully designed, but quite simple pieces um, she died of cancer. We learned that in an Instagram post that her family shared on Friday, April 2nd. And the tributes and the Instagram comments poured in. I mean, she was really beloved, really respected. She has a young son, a husband she leaves behind. She grew up in the jewelry industry. Her father was a master jeweler. She was actually a contestant on JCK's Rockstar program for any of those who you remember our video series filmed back in 2012, 2013. And, you know, we got to know her then as, as editors. She was just, just so lovely, so sweet, so smart. Jennifer Gandy of Greenwich Street Jewelers posted a beautiful tribute to her on Facebook and on Instagram about how just wonderful she was to work with and what a beautiful person she was. And honestly, at age 47, it's just utterly devastating and heartbreaking to think about all that she had left and that she won't be able to pursue. So we'll miss you, Alex. We miss you and you're missed. And, you know, I, I don't want to spend too much more time because I definitely will cry. So. Every person I've talked to has extremely nice things to say about her. She's apparently a extremely... You know, in addition to being a huge talent and an extremely hard worker, she was, by all accounts, an, a nice person. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was very shocking. I had last seen her in the January 2020 Gem Awards, and there was this great photo, one of these kind of gifts, you know, dressed to the nines. And obviously, she looked great. She always looked great. She was just, you know, obviously very put together, but very genuine. She was quite humble and to think that I won't see her again is it's just very sad. But I know that in the tribute they posted that said she passed away surrounded by family and friends. And it sounds like, you know, she just had a lot of love in her life. So yeah. to all her, anybody who knew her, to anybody who bought her jewels and to, you know, to the industry that worked with her, you know, my deepest condolences. I think that we'll be hearing about her for many years to come and her legacy. <sighs> um, 
we do have another departure to announce. This one, thankfully, not tragic. Yes. It's sad, though. It is sad. It's not tragic, thankfully. Um, our beloved publisher, Mark Smelzer, who was with JCK for coming on two decades, about 17 years, took another job. And his last day with the magazine was March 26th. He is now with Jewelers Mutual Group, and it's a brand new position. I think they created it just for him. Chief Content Executive. Uh, which I think underscores the the very importance of content and how this is a role dedicated entirely to that. And Mark, I can't think of a better person to lead that charge. He is such a smart, likable, just clued in, totally tapped into the zeitgeist thinker that if if Jewelers Mutual is ready to up its game on that level, then they they really have chosen the perfect guy. So I am not hysterical, but if he were totally leaving the jewelry industry, it would be a different story. Yeah, and I think it's great that he he's still remaining with the industry. I remember when he first came on, 2000, the early, the mid-2000s, you know, he'd just come from Variety, and he struck us as somebody who'd, like, be a publisher for a while, then kind of do something else. And at one point, he did leave for a little bit, but he eventually came back to the industry, and I think he developed a love for the industry, and he's such a friendly person, and he's such a upbeat person and likable person that... You know, I think he does extremely well in this kind of personal industry. Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, he's just one of those people I could talk to for hours and there would never be a dry spot in the conversation. I, I just want to share a brief memory of, and this is long before I joined JCK, but, you know, I first met Mark in Vicenza one year. It was a January Vicenza show. I believe it was 2005. And we were at this wonderful hotel in Verona called the Duatore. And, you know, one of these grand European hotels. And it was a, you know, a group press dinner. And I think he obviously wasn't press strictly. He was a publisher, but he joined and, you know, we chatted. It was all, I just thought, of course, this guy is so likable right from the start. But I ended up seeing him again a few months later that year in Istanbul. I happened to go to the Istanbul show and he was there as well. And we chatted. I think we hit it off again. And he actually invited me to join him at a client dinner. So he was there as JCK's publisher meeting with some, you know, advertisers or potential advertisers. And there I am just sitting there enjoying my new friendship with Mark and chatting away, listening. And meanwhile, I'm an editor at National Jeweler at the time. So I was actually a competitor. But that's how magnanimous he was. He just you know, business was important to him, but it was never as important as the relationships. And that's exactly why he succeeded and why he continues to succeed because he's genuine and he values the people he meets and, and they feel that. And, you know, the business kind of flows out of that. So congrats, Mark and Jewelers Mutual, you lucky devils. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's talk about, I guess, what's in the news. Signet just acquired this jewelry subscription service called Roxbox. And uh, I just spoke a little earlier today with the founder of it, Megan Rose, mm -hmm. very interesting person. She was a bank consultant. She worked at McKinsey. And I guess at some point she started a jewelry brand and she started thinking about why it's so hard for jewelry brands to get exposure. And she started thinking about, okay, if I could design the ultimate jewelry model, what would it be? So she came up with this whole idea of a subscription service. And it was kind of like the same time that Stitch Fix came on the scene. What year was that, roughly? 2012, I believe. It's a really interesting model. If people love jewelry. You know, it's kind of like caters to the serious jewelry fan. And I, I think there's always been a question, is there a serious jewelry fan out there? And I think she's 
prove that there is. There are people who will be excited to get three items a month and see what's out there. The subscription itself is around $21 monthly, correct? Yes. So it's really, really low-cost jewelry, right? Tell me, what do you know about the jewelry itself? The average three pieces is about $150. So it's it's definitely low-cost jewelry. You can see a lot of different ways to take this model, right? I think this model in particular is more about discovery and personalizing things to a certain person's taste. They give you two things that you choose and one surprise. And she said in about half the shipments, there's a purchase. So that's pretty good. It does seem really fun. I mean, that discovery element, especially that, obviously, the surprise piece that adds the discovery element is super cool because I think that's missing from, you know, these online transactions. I mean, I love the way that she's brought this online business, obviously, into the real world, much like our last podcast guest who also has a try before you buy model, not the same thing, not a subscription service, but again, you know, tying an e-commerce experience with a real world feel. And what's cool about what she does, it's kind of subscription and it's also kind of rental, right? Because like for Stitch Fix, you're not going to wear a piece of clothes and then send it back, you know? But with this jewelry, you can wear for three months and then decide to send it back and you just pay the subscription fee. Yeah. I did speak to independent jewelers at the end of 2020 who had tried some form of this whole box experience, you know, let me deliver a box to my clients. They'll pick out what they like or don't like and, you know, pay for that that they do and and send the rest back. And that was a, you know, a way to transcend the challenges of 2020. But I'm sure a number of them realized, wait a minute, this is actually a fun thing to do. I mean, it sounds like the jewelry that these independent jewelers were sending was a lot more valuable. And obviously there are greater concerns there. Um, it does seem like a real fun way to add that element. I mean, I recently had a subscription box service through uh, Rachel Zoe. It used to be called Box of Style. It's one of the earlier ones, and it was recently rebranded Curator or Curator. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. And there was actually a fair bit of jewelry in there. It wasn't always jewelry. A lot of it was accessories or beauty items. But some of the jewelry was great. And the one thing is I finally canceled it after maybe three boxes. I don't think I even did a full year's worth of membership because I realized that I was just getting stuff I didn't need and that there was a wastefulness to it, that I felt wasteful buying things that I didn't need or even necessarily want, even though they were kind of nice. But even though you could ship them back, though. Well, you couldn't. That's the thing with the box that I did. It wasn't a try before you buy. It was just you pay for this box. It was a great value. You got some stuff in it. But in the end, I just felt like buying things that I don't really need, especially stuff that just shows up in a box on my doorstep, just felt like, you know, not the kind of mindset of a modern day consumer. I felt wasteful and it just didn't feel sustainable on all levels. You know, this is me just being a little bit of a devil's advocate. I do. I think the fact that you can return it is wonderful. I think the fact that it's got this discovery element is is exciting. I can see why people like it. I can see why Signet purchased it, although uh, I'm very curious to see where it goes from there. You know, I mean, any thoughts on what Signet might do to, you know, enhance this business? So they're being very closed-lipped about that. She didn't want to talk about it, and they haven't been that specific. I do think they have some kind of plan to integrate it into some of their other brands. I mean, what's good about it is, according to her, you know, a lot of the base consumer is millennials, which, you know, every jewelry company is looking for. So the idea, you know, maybe that they can return the box to a K's or to a Zales or to have some kind of integration with those brands, with this kind of quote unquote hipper brand, 
you know, that would be something that is potentially attractive. It's not clear how this is going to be integrated into the larger company, but I know certainly something that Ginodrosis has has spoken about, the CEO of Signet, is, you know, wanting to get into different, more interesting businesses. And, you know, I, I will say, just speaking generally, not about this specific acquisition, the consolidation of companies, I don't think it's necessarily healthy for so many companies to be concentrated into another company. I don't, I don't think that's very healthy for consumers or for businesses. It might be good for the acquiring company and for the people who own the company that was bought. I just, when you see this ongoing consolidation, I, I don't think it's necessarily healthy for the economy. And I don't, I don't necessarily blame Signet because it's happening in every industry. Yeah. I mean, you know, you kind of have to see how it all goes, but it does seem like at some point you start getting a little diluted with what your particular mission is and who you are as a corporate entity. But I like, I like all these different ways of thinking about buying jewelry. You know, I like the new models. Obviously, they're all sort of hinge on interesting digital platforms or, or entrepreneurial. You know, the woman who founded Roxbox comes from a business background and a consulting background. I mean, she's obviously tackling the business from a different perspective than somebody who's grown up in jewelry. I like that jewelry is attracting these different kinds of thinkers because it just, it excites the industry and it obviously gives people a lot of ideas. I think there are a lot of ideas that independent jewelers can take from these, these news items. You know, this isn't just something that's happening to your big competitor. It's something that maybe has a lesson for you in your market in a way that, you know, you can downsize and make it personal. But there are so many ways that I think if you're savvy and you're looking for new ideas, they are everywhere. And to see these kinds of stories should excite everybody in the business because it just gives you different ways to sell. So yeah, it's cool. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now back to the show. So I have to preface the next point of conversation by saying that today is April 7th. Those of you listening will be hearing this next week, but today is the opening of Watches and Wonders Geneva. Of course, it's all virtual this year for the second year in a row. But unlike last year, when the organizers of the fair threw it together in about six weeks because it was, you know, the pandemic obviously threw everyone for a loop. This year, they've had plenty of time. They, I think, decided in November that this event was going to be virtual. And 38 brands are participating more than ever. So Watches and Wonders, for those of you who aren't super familiar, used to be called SIHH, or the Salon International de la Haute Logerie. So the Salon of High Watchmaking. It was rebranded as Watches and Wonders. Impressive uh, pronunciation. Thank you very much. I am not a French speaker, so I try. Over the last couple of years, they, they started out with like a few satellite events, one in Miami. They've had them in Asia. And now the entire concept of the fair is Watches and Wonders. And the virtual element is taking place now. And if you could see my desk and also my inbox, it is incredibly jammed with press releases about all the new collections coming out. So, of course, Rolex will be, you know, the talk of the town new Explorer models, a new beautiful Datejust model with a gorgeous green palm frond dial. Patek Philippe also, I think the last year of the 5711, reference 5711, the Nautilus, also with an incredible 
incredibly beautiful olive green dial. Big year for green dials in general. IWC with a smaller, more, well, it's still quite big because it's the big pilot watch. It's revisited that collection, but it's now a smaller size, somewhere in the 42 millimeter range. Don't quote me on that. But something that just sits a little smaller. I think it used to be closer to 45 or 46, like a real big watch. Panerai with a big announcement about a watch called the Submersible eLab ID. Now, I've written about this one for the New York Times for an edition coming out on April 13th. So quite possibly the same day we're all listening to this episode where Panerai, it's a concept watch for now. It's due to be produced or commercialized in 2022 in a limited edition of 30 pieces. But for now, it's 98.6% recycled. So that is, I believe, a record in the industry. I mean, a lot of watchmakers have started producing recycled straps, you know, material that's somehow reused or recycled for things like straps. And occasionally you'll find other elements of like the case or the bezel. But this is, as far as I know, certainly in the luxury watch world, the first time that this nearly 100% of the watch has been recycled, including the super luminova on the markers and the hands, including the case, which is made out of eco-titanium, a recycled form of titanium. Now, the other interesting element, which is what I wrote about for the Times, is that an un-Swiss-like move, the Panerai made the entire list of suppliers who worked on the piece, nine external suppliers who were often, you know, companies that didn't have any watchmaking business in their portfolios. They will sometimes work with aerospace companies because they're, you know, experts at reusing raw materials. And so Panerai made that list public as part of its press release. Now, this is something that we don't typically see Swiss companies doing. They're, you know, the Swiss have always been secretive. You know, we think about their banks. Obviously, it's in some <laughs> ways associated with the very culture of Switzerland. And Swiss watchmakers have always said, hey, you know, we don't, we don't list our suppliers. That's our expertise. That's our savoir-faire, our know-how. And it's a small world. So if you know my supplier, maybe you're going to go ask them to make stuff for you and they won't have capacity to continue producing for me. So there's always been a reluctance to do that. But what I also found in my reporting is that, you know, the fact that Panerai is going public with these names is part of this effort to promote sustainability in the watch industry and say, listen, if other watchmakers want to do the same thing, we encourage them. We want our industry to make a noise in this way. And I think there's a little bit of grandstanding there. There's a little bit of, oh, we, you know, we're the first to do this. But yes, of course, please come copy us. I mean, it, it feels a little bit like a little bit for show, but obviously it's, you know, a great direction they're going. And I mean, it, it's not going to make a huge difference in the world of sustainability. It's only 30 pieces and they're actually going to be quite expensive. They're in the neighborhood of 60,000 euros a piece. But this move towards openness and this kind of enhancing steps toward transparency it's just something we haven't seen from the Swiss. One of the things, and I started to say this, but I'll come back to it. One of the reasons that a lot of companies have also been reluctant to share their suppliers, and this is a very hard thing to talk about in Switzerland, is that a lot of companies want to admit to the fact that their Swiss-made watches, amounts of them are manufactured in China, or at least a fairly significant amount of those components, whether it's the casing or things that go inside are actually made in China. And so you know, that, that tends to be more of an issue for the mid-price and lower-price brands, not as much for the prestige makers. But this movement towards transparency, you know, really kind of stumbles over this question of can brands that have promoted themselves as Swiss-made for decades eventually come out and tell their clients, well, actually, I mean, Swiss law dictates that in order to have the label Swiss-made, among other things, there's a lot of considerations, but 
60% of the value of the manufacturing costs of that product have to be incurred in Switzerland. But I, as far as I'm told, there's not a real policing body there. The fact is that public opinion is really guiding them there. And so I do think we're going to start seeing more companies reveal where they source their products, certainly where they get their gold, which is the most thorny sourcing issue of all when it comes to raw materials. And, you know, it, it's not necessarily all bad. I mean, if, you, if you're doing a lot of work on improving your sourcing and if you have these kind of great craftsmen manufacturing your goods, I mean, you should be allowed to actually encouraged to talk about that. There's no reason not to put that information out there. Going back to like the fair, the Watches and Wonders idea, it was really, I remember they had this kind of really cool plan to make it this kind of seven-day thing with consumers, and they would get watch enthusiasts, and there would be talks in Geneva. It sounded like a really fun idea, a way to involve people outside the industry and I certainly understand why, because of COVID, that can't happen necessarily. And it wouldn't necessarily work virtually the same way it would in person. But do you think they'll ever bring that back? I really did think it was a cool idea. You know, I think they love that because I think the brands love to get in front of actual collectors and consumers. But, you know, the, the industry is having some serious distribution. I don't know if challenges are the right word, but like kind of a a reckoning. You know, there are certain brands who are sort of indisputable champions of the marketplace, but Rolex and Patek have wholesalers. You know, they they deal in wholesale and they don't retail through their own channels. But everybody else, you know, is still dealing with distribution, trying to figure out, do we go direct? Do we sell online through our own e-commerce operation? And the fair is sort of hangs in the balance of where companies decide to pursue, you know, which kind of distribution strategy they decide to pursue. And I think they probably will bring it back to some consumer facing element when COVID has disappeared, God willing. But, you know, a lot of brands need wholesale distribution. They're not strong enough to simply exist through a retail only model like a Richard Mill and Audemars Piguet. So we'll see. I think I don't want the trade to be forgotten in all this, I guess is what I'm saying. Consumer stuff is like glitzy and fun and it ends up elevating the kind of experience because you want to impress all the you know wealthy collectors. But in the end, you just need to sell watches and make watches that are saleable. So thanks as always for a really interesting conversation. Yes, thank you. And great French pronunciations there. And uh, <laughs> glad you've gotten vaxxed. And I hope everybody out there gets vaxxed too, because we all need a shot in the arm, right? Amen. We sure do. In the meantime, merci, au revoir. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.